Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. It's the uh, regular Monday night meditation group here at Against the Stream. How many people here for the first time tonight? See some new faces. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to anybody tuning in to the Zoom group at home. You're here for the first time. I decided that um, for the new year, there's plenty, there's a bunch of seats. If there's a seat, maybe raise your hand. There's a couple of people. You can pull more chairs down if you want, but there are seats around. Um, since it's January and new calendar year that I would, uh, you know, spend the next, I don't know, this couple of weeks or something talking about the basics, the kind of the fundamentals, the basics of, of Buddhism. And last week I talked about mindfulness. I feel like mindfulness, which is the seventh factor of the eightfold path. Um, and one of the really core techniques in Buddhism of that we that we utilize and, and mindfulness is connected with um, just about everything else like you have to be mindful in order to develop wisdom you have to be mindful in order to respond with compassion mindfulness is like this foundational uh, necessity for what we're trying to do in in the Buddhist uh, practice and so then um, I thought that tonight I would talk about ethics. I mean, I'll go and I'm sure I'll end up going all the way through the Eightfold Path because it's all necessary. It's all um, connected. But I thought I would jump from mindfulness that we talked about last week to uh, ethics, morality, karma. Tonight we'll talk about karma. And I like to begin with... Um, asking you to talk to each other. I've been, I've been teaching this Monday night group for like 17, maybe almost 18 years here on the West side, every Monday night for almost 18 years now. Um, and one of my intentions behind teaching isn't uh, just to guide you in meditation, but to help you meet each other. I feel like it's the part of the job description of a meditation teacher is, or a Dharma teacher, a Buddhist teacher in the way that I, I want to teach, which is I don't want to just teach you meditation. I want to uh, help facilitate you developing Sangha. Sangha is the Buddhist word for uh, community. And it's one of the core refuges of Buddhism that we need friendships. We need connections. We need um, each other. It's all relational. It's not about I'm a good meditator but I'm the only meditator that I know. <laughs> it's about surrendering ourselves with as many meditators, as many people on the path to support and encourage. And I'm gonna talk about that tonight, but I say that because I like to start by asking you to speak to each other. And I'm gonna talk about ethics, but I'll say briefly, what I'm gonna say is the reason why ethics are so important is because of karma. And so I'm gonna ask you, you know, and that's a big broad statement. <laughs> uh, and karma, this word karma has made it into our culture. Like it's in 
hip hop, <laughs> it's in punk rock, it's in, you know, advertising, it's in, uh, you know, karma. It's like, it's, a, it's across the board, it's made it into our culture. Uh, and I think that there's, uh, some people actually know what it means. And sometimes it's used mixed with our Judeo-Christian conditioning uh, as a term that means punishment right? Like, like you're going to get your karma. It's often used in the sort of negative way, not, or sometimes in a toxically positive way, it's all good karma or, um, so I'm going to talk about that tonight, but from where you're at, whether you've been practicing Buddhism for a long time or you're brand new and you're just here to check it out, the, uh, you know, your treatment center said, Hey, let's go meditate tonight. Or you're probation officer said you got to go to meditation or <laughs> your therapist suggested it or whatever, you know, you're here and whether you're brand new or you've been, some of you've been sitting with me for years and, and practicing Buddhism with other teachers and traditions for decades and, and karma is very familiar to you. Something that you believe in, something that you understand, something that you uh, are, are mindful of in your everyday life. And some of you, it's not really totally on the radar. But for an icebreaker to talk to each other and have a, a brief conversation, I give you about five minutes for this. And I forget to say this, I'm gonna say it tonight. I give you about five minutes, so you should only talk for about one minute. And you should listen for two or three minutes to the other people that you're talking to. Because sometimes I forget to say that. And I know there's you know, some people who are just like, oh, five minutes, I, I'm gonna talk the whole time. And you know, uh, don't have don't have the mindfulness to be like, I'll say something for a minute or so, and then I'll listen to what you have to say, whoever I'm talking to. So in, in the at home in the small groups, make sure like time yourself, only give yourself a minute or so. So that's the question: is uh, do you believe in karma? What do you think about karma? One minute, go uh, find find like three or four people in the room. And introduce yourself to some people you don't know and talk about karma. Where is it in your life? And at home, I'm going to put you in breakout groups. Topic, karma. We'll have some, um, I'll talk and we'll have some discussion about karma and ethics after the meditation, but let's begin with a period of sitting meditation find a way to sit that's upright relaxed find a posture that feels sustainable and remember that um, it's okay to be uncomfortable and not do anything about it part of part of what sitting meditation is teaching us is how to be more tolerant and ultimately more compassion of discomfort and we learn that from sitting still for long periods of time, not so long tonight, only about 30 minutes, but your ass will probably hurt at some point. And that's part of it, part of the practice, part of the teaching, learning to be a bit uncomfortable without uh, running from it, learning to just sit with it, be with it. So find a way to, that feels sustainable. And of course, if you reach the edge of your tolerance, you can move your posture, you can shift, but we try to sit still. Allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Taking a moment to release any unnecessary tension the body might be holding. Soften 
the jaw, the brow, shoulders, belly. Settling into the relative stillness of the upright posture. So that the spine is erect without the body being rigid. A relaxed upright posture. And establish an inner intention, an inner aspiration or attitude of kindness, of friendliness. The intention to be kind to yourself as you sit here. Aspiring to meet our thoughts and emotions and sensations with a friendly response rather than judgment or anger or fear, trying to be friendly towards even the difficult emotions, even the discomfort in the body or heart or mind. My teachers say we begin by establishing loving kindness, which is actually just radically accepting ourselves just as we are. The kindest act is to accept this moment just as it is, to not fight it. To not get lost in craving for it to be different, to just accept right now these thoughts and feelings, sensations, emotions are here. From this foundation of friendliness, we establish mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness of the breath and body. The first foundation, the Buddha encourages one to take a seat, to establish mindfulness, and to attune the awareness, direct the awareness to the sensations the breath creates, breathing in, Know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Focus the attention on the breath. Letting everything else recede to the background, the thoughts, the sounds, the other sensations or emotions. We're not trying to stop the mind, but in the beginning here, we're trying to stop paying attention to what your mind is doing. Stop indulging in the thoughts. 
come back to the breath over and over. Investigating what the breath feels like, knowing I'm breathing in and out. What sensations does the breath create at the nostrils or chest or belly? Becoming fully present here, letting go of the past. Let go of the future. Bring your full attention to the here and now. Body sitting, breathing. You find yourself lost in thinking about the future, the past. Just acknowledge it with kindness, thinking again, non-judgmental. And then come back to the breath and disengage, reestablish mindfulness of the sensation of breathing. Let the thoughts dissipate in the background. Come back to the breath.
You can choose to use the breath as the primary object of awareness. But the Buddha's instructions begin to expand, encouraging us to bring awareness to the whole body. Head to toe. Sensation. to the emotion that we feel in the body. As you soften your belly with each exhale, what emotion is there in the belly, in the chest? Opening to the sense doors. Just hanging out mindful the sound of the rain. We include the mind itself, rather than ignoring the mind, bringing non-judgmental present time awareness to how thoughts appear and proliferate, associate this sound of the rain leading to a memory or a worry. And the mind free associates. Memories and plans, hopes and fears arising and passing, we can become aware. This is what the mind is doing, it's thinking, it's remembering.
whether you're paying attention to your breath or another sensation in the body, an emotion or thought or sound, begin to investigate the feeling tone. What's this thought feel like? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? These sounds, how do I perceive them? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or any of the sensations, the breath or anything else in the body, the heart. Investigating what's happening and how it feels in this moment. Where is there pain? or discomfort, or annoyance? Where is there pleasure or ease or comfort? Train the mind to be present so that we see the impermanent nature of all of the sensations, sense door, experience, emotions. And we see how often we're clinging to impermanent, pleasant things, craving for impermanent, pleasant experience or resisting, meeting with anger, resentment, aversion, or fear, the painful experiences in the heart, in the body, in the mind. Mindfulness teaching us to let go. to accept and to respond with more compassion
for the last couple of minutes, let go of any effort. Soften the belly, relax the shoulders, the jaw. The only effort into accepting this moment just as it is, not trying to make it any different. Stop trying to meditate. And just feel what's here. Sort of remembered while I was um, giving the meditation instructions that I think I think last week I said I'd continue talking about mindfulness. Um, I don't know. I'm, maybe I, I don't know. Did, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're on to karma and ethics. But I felt like uh, my recollection was that I didn't fully unpack. I did mindfulness in sort of a general way last week and didn't really unpack the four foundations um, of, of how we really deeply practice mindfulness. Um, so I will come back to that. 
It's a great emphasis in Buddhism uh, placed on um, renunciation and uh, in service of ethics that there's, um, you know, the whole setup of Buddhism is um, if you want to free yourself from suffering, this is how to do it. And it's, you know, Buddhism is a really cool humanist psychology that says, we'll show you, you know, how to end suffering. If you're tired of suffering, here's what you can, what can be done. And this very um, practical and uh, um, hopeful perspective that says it's not fatalistic. It's not that says actually uh, we human beings. I, that's why I like to think of it as as humanist psychology, which is the you know that human beings have the power and potential to so radically shift how we relate to pleasure and pain and impermanence and the human ego self. Uh, we can we can through meditative training and renunciation we can actually be happy. Fucking radical, right? You know, happy, whatever fucking happy means. And usually it's framed not in happiness, but in freedom from suffering. The end of all of those levels of unnecessary suffering in life. In order to get there, number one, mindfulness, necessary, impossible without mindfulness. You can't think your way to it or intellectualize or read or you can't have faith into liberation from a Buddhist perspective. It's a, a direct experience. Mindfulness is necessary. Present time awareness of our own breath and body and emotions and, and mind tendencies, uh, uh, mental experience. And then in order to get there, there being the third noble truth, liberation, freedom, referred to as nirvana, happiness, the end of suffering, or at least, you know, maybe some of you believe in the end of suffering, at least just decrease suffering. Like it's okay also to be like, I'm not sure about this enlightenment shit, but I sure would like to suffer less. I sure would like to be happier. You know, I love to diss that guy, the news anchor guy who wrote the book, 10% Happier. You know, um, and you know, the, what Buddhism is teaching is 100% happier. Not, you know, not just, I, I don't know, maybe the guy was already 90% free and he just wanted that last 10%, I don't know. But what Buddhism is saying is that, you know, exponential, 100%, maybe you don't believe that, maybe 90%, maybe 80%, but the teaching is 100% freedom, that it's possible, that we have the power, the potential, the ability to get totally free. But it is asking for kind of a lot, if you want it, you know, it's saying like, yeah, it's possible, and here's the map, here's the path, the four noble truths, the eightfold path. 
Um, and it's asking for things that seem sort of simple ethics, like rigorous honesty all of the time. Telling the truth, even when it's inconvenient. Even, you know, showing up and being honest in our relationships. And, you know, we can all kind of be like, well, that doesn't, you know, yeah, of course, I want to be honest. But are we really honest? Rigorously, uh, thoroughly, consistently? And so part of the renunciation is full renunciation of dishonesty and full renunciation of killing and violence and full renunciation of misconduct with our sexuality and full renunciation of intoxicants, of recreationally clouding our mind and our uh, ability to be mindful, not you know, giving up on, on that stuff that's getting in the way of our presence. That's why we like it. It clouds the mind, feels fucking great. Nothing better than not being present. <laughs> because being present is often painful or stressful or you know, difficult in some way or another. And I said it earlier. Um, so, you know, the, the importance of ethics, and I'll come back to it, but I do think it's important to uh, acknowledge that the reason that it's not ethics for ethics sake, it's not like being a good, moral, honest, uh, churchy person just for like uh, some sort of religious ego trip or something. It all comes back to karma. The whole reason why the Buddha is encouraging honesty and renunciation and an ethical way is because this humanist psychology of Buddhism that we uh, are discussing, practicing, believes, understands that uh, there's something about this human mind and heart and body, this this process that we call me, uh, that is fully and completely responsible for our actions. It's sort of the definition of karma, total personal responsibility. That every time we are dishonest, we're creating some unnecessary suffering for ourselves, whether we get caught or not. Even, you know, even though sometimes you feel like, I got away with it fucking lied, nobody knows, created a whole story, you know, but we know and we, there's some responsibility in that, some uh, stress, some fear that dishonesty creates. Unless you're a complete psychopath. Some people do seem to be able to uh, be very harmful, unethical, without much, um, conscious consequence to it. But for, you know, the majority, you know, the masses, <laughs> um, there's a consequence to unethical behavior, whether you get caught or not. And this is different than like, this is where like law and ethics are different, you know, like, and some of our laws are unethical in themselves. But so we're just talking about ethics. So it's not about whether you get caught. It's about how it feels when we behave, what the karmic fruit is when we lie, when we steal, when we kill, when we 
cause harm with our sexuality, uh, when we're not in integrity in our relationships. So the Buddha said, you know, for householders, for the, so for the monks and nuns, hundreds of rules, hundreds of levels of renunciation, really strict, high level of renunciation in early, in Theravadan Buddhism, early, early Buddhist path. He said for the householder, he said, if you want to be a monk, you're going to be celibate, no more sex for the rest of your life. You're going to, you know, no money, no, you know, like no, no property, you can't own anything. Like there's all of this renunciation if you're taking the monastic path. But for the householders, he said, okay, you're going to be in relationships. Um, you're going to engage in sexuality. Just don't be unskillful in your relationships. Don't be dishonest. Don't, uh, he talks about sexual misconduct. That you're going to be in the world, just, you know, really low level of, of renunciation. Don't kill. Renounce killing. Intentional, volitional murder. Now, on some level, Probably all of us would say, yeah, I'm, I'm not planning on murdering anybody. But the Buddha takes it um, beyond humans, not murdering each other humans, to not killing any living being, to not intentionally murdering any living being, which is a much harder form of renunciation. For most of us, pretty easy to not kill each other but not so easy to not kill the mosquitoes, the ants, the cockroaches, the spiders, whatever, whoever you're like to murder. <laughs> you're afraid of, you are annoyed by, they're in your kitchen, you're gonna exterminate. <laughs> and it's not so much about it's about karma. It's about what, how does it feel when you kill? Can you um, kill with a open and compassionate and loving heart? Or do you actually have to kind of have a self-centeredness? I'm more important than this being. Uh, I hate mosquitoes. I hate spiders. What, I mean, what do you kill? You kill spiders, you kill cockroaches. I fucking hate cockroaches. Right? Don't you? I mean, maybe not. Ants, when they're just all over the place. There's a little bit of like, I'm fucking really inconvenient. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder these ants. It's a fucking extermination. Karma can be understood, uh, the, the word itself means action, and then there's an understanding that actions have consequences, cause and effect. Now, one of the difficult for a lot of us Westerners, and I think tricky things about karma, uh, for us to understand, hard for me on some levels to understand, 
is that um, what it's saying is that every single volitional action has a consequence, either uh, positive or negative, we could say. Good karma, bad karma, positive effect. Every act of kindness, of generosity, of forgiveness, of every positive act, positive reverberation, positive fruit. Every time we're kind, we're generous, we're loving, we're patient, we're tolerant, we're accepting. We're, every time we meet ourselves or each other or the world with wisdom, creating good karma for ourselves. There's a, a karmic fruit to wise actions, to skillful behavior. And this is important. There's a whole, and it's, it's empowering, right? It's saying like, you can actually create your future, your reality based on how you respond to what's happening. Part of the tricky part is what Buddhism teaches is that that karma can ripen. Immediate, there's, there's instant karma. Sometimes you're generous and you just feel like, oh, that feels great to give. You tell the truth and you just feel like, oh, it's so good to be honest and integrity. You feel it right now. Instant karma. The teaching is the fruit of our actions, whether positive or negative, can ripen in the present or any time in the future, including, and here's where I lose half the room, including future lives. It might not all happen in this lifetime that part of the whole Buddhist rebirth, reincarnation teaching is that it is our karma that is reborn. Did you have that ever wonder? You know, because on one level, Buddhism says, well, there's no self. <laughs> you know, there's no permanent self or soul in Buddhist cosmology, but there's something that gets reborn. What is it? Your karma. <laughs> Your karma keeps coming back until, and, and the definition of enlightenment is karmic purification, that there's no more karma to purify, that you're done with the negative karma. It's all in, uh, I guess it's in the black. <laughs> it's all in the positive, you know, uh, uh, level. No more negative karma. If we have any negative karma left in our being at birth, at death, according to Buddhism, Rebirth. So this, you know, whether you believe it or not, is, is an interesting thing to think about. Like, oh, if I don't want to come back here, I better do a lot of good. <laughs> if I'm sick of suffering on this plane of humanity where there's just, you know, constant oppression and ignorance, and I'd like to be done with this, I'd like to be free, I don't want to keep going through puberty over and over. I don't want to keep, there's, there's a um, dramatic example that the suttas, they say by the time we've taken this birth, because of reincarnation, we've been reincarnating for all these, so by the time you take this birth and you hear the Dharma, you've already cried from all of the grief, all of the loss, all of the misery. You've cried as many tears as is in all of the, rivers on the planet. 
Like you fucking so, and then and then it says you've also been subject to so much violence. You've been murdered so many times. You've bled as much blood as in in the seas and the oceans. And if we, you know, it's like a little dramatic and really that much. It's all all that suffering, all that death, all that violence. But if you look at history, even just the history that we know, a lot of fucking murder. A lot of violence. You look back, you're like, fuck, people have just been killing each other since the beginning of time. Mostly for stupid religious reasons. Or other political power struggles. I mean, religion's probably mostly just power stuff, but. So, so I know I start to lose people and I get a little, mm, I get a little agnostic about it myself. Uh, I don't disbelieve in rebirth, but I'm kind of like, I don't know. But it is the teaching of karma. Can ripen in this lifetime or any future lifetime. Now, this perspective of karma ripening in future lifetimes has been used um, to uphold oppression. It's used in traditional Indian society, Vedic, Hindu, the caste system. It's been used to uphold racism and sexism and saying like, well, it's your karma. And it's the karma of people with darker skin in India to be oppressed. And the people with lighter skin, the Brahmins, to have more power, more privilege. So the Buddha spent a lot of his energy trying to undo this miss under this, this disgusting perversion of karma as a tool for oppression and rebirth and, and saying like, oh, it's your karma that, you know, and the Buddha was just like, absolute bullshit. No way that we use these, this truth of karma in order to uphold oppression. We use the truth of karma to undo it to go against it and to acknowledge that anybody upholding intentionally, volitionally upholding any form of ignorance and oppression is creating negative karma for themselves, is never getting a free pass, is never the bestower of karma. Can you see how perverted that is to be like, I'm going to hurt you and say it's your karma that I'm hurting you. I'm going to oppress you and say it's your karma that I'm oppressing you rather than taking the actual teaching, which is, it's my karma how I treat you. It's your karma how you treat me. It's our karma how we treat each other. There's no justification for racism, sexism, homophobia, any, you know, oppression. No justification. We're all 100% responsible for how we behave period. That having been said, it, it does get a bit confusing when you want to think about like, oh shit, well, is my shitty childhood because of my past lives? Did I choose those parents? Did I choose that childhood? Was that my karma that was born into that neglect or abuse or, or this racist, sexist society that we live in? Is that my, I chose that, my, my own past lives put me in this situation? 
And maybe there's, you know, there's some kind of like, we're, we're, we're in it. There's a, you know, a cycle that we're in. It can be a real trap. And I've, I've found myself trapped in this. My own encouragement for you, you get to find your own way with karma, rebirth, what makes sense to you, what doesn't make sense. I always, just like an open mind, like don't get too rigid in your beliefs, but just an open mind is my encouragement. My sense when it comes to karma is to let go of trying to figure out why my life is like this, why the world is like this. Make sense? And use the karma, if it makes sense to you, to say what I do believe or hope is true is that uh, it's not about what got me here, but how I am going to, how I'm responding, how I'm showing up in my life now, the karma of my reaction, the karma of my response is what's going to get me to where I want to go. I don't know what happened in my past lives. I don't know why, you know, the world is the way it is. I don't know why, you know, our lives. But what I do know is that if I respond with kindness rather than hatred, if I respond with compassion rather than justified rage, if I respond with, com with forgiveness, it transforms my relationship to the world of ignorance and oppression that we live in. Make sense? How we respond rather than why is it like this? That, that why question, fucking dead end. And we, you know, we know, you know, kind of social, political, uh, we can look at history and, and have some knowing of why. And karma is uh, some explanation of that. But um, you've got to be careful for not falling into that trap of using karma as an excuse to not have compassion. Even if somebody created the suffering for themselves, they're still worthy of compassion. They're still worthy of love. Make, right? Rather than this punishment model of like, well, if it was my karma, then I'm not, I don't deserve any compassion. I don't deserve any forgiveness. Even if it's our karma, their karma, still love, compassion, mercy is the appropriate response from Buddhist perspective. So the Buddha says, you want to get free? Take full responsibility for your freedom. And it's where he's departing very, you know, very much departing from uh, the polytheistic view of uh, the Indian culture. He's departing from their misuse of, of um, karma as a form of oppression in their culture. And he's saying, this is a humanist psychology. We can do this based on our own efforts. And it's not about petitioning gods. It's not about a, a theistic um, grace of the guru or, or, or grace of God. He's saying, this is based on how you behave. You have to change your behavior. And then he gives five simple 
forms of renunciation. He says, for householders, you can still have the job and have the sex and have the money and you can do all of that stuff and still get free. It's going to be probably more difficult than if you go celibate and, you know, go for the full renunciation. His Buddhist perspective is that actually a higher level of renunciation makes liberation easier. Give yourself less options. It's easier. When you have a lot of options, it's way more difficult. It's harder to not cling, to be in sexual relationships without clinging. Have you tried that? Without attachment, right? Attachment equals suffering. How do we do that? How do we show up in a non-attached, loving, compassionate way? To uh, be engaged in earning a living and livelihood and, you know, it's in the Eightfold Path, right? Livelihood. You're going to be in this world. You, you know, gonna, uh, how are you going to relate to money? Where the cause of suffering is craving. How much of your craving, how much of your worry, how much of your attachment is around finances so far in this life? When you look at how often are you worried about your bank account balance? How, worried, how often are we... Uh, striving for some more material stuff that's causing us some suffering. So he's saying, you know, you can do that. It's still possible. So you're just making it more difficult. We're making it more difficult for ourselves <laughs> by engaging in the material and sensual world. Easier to get liberated by just giving it all up. I always feel like this is an important message from someone like me who's choosing sensual material life, um, that we're choosing it. Celibacy is a viable option. You don't ever have to have sex again, and you'll never suffer about the relationship again. Total option. And the reframe, which is like, oh, every time I'm in a relationship and I'm suffering about it, I'm choosing that. Because don't you often feel like, why is it like this? Why is my heart getting broken or my needs aren't being met or my desires aren't or whatever it is? And we feel like a victim of like, fuck, it's the wrong. Rather than like, oh, I signed up for it. 100%, I chose it when I said, do you want to go on a date? Would you like to suffer together for a while? <laughs> I mean, we'll have all of the joy and love and great orgasms and all that stuff. But also like, we're going to suffer, right? You ready? Let's. Try that on your first date. Get real with each other of like, I fucking want to suffer with you. I choose you. I'm going to cling to you. And you're going to cling to me. And it's going to be miserable some of the time. And it's going to be amazing some of the time. But the karma of that choice is there's going, you know, like, I guess the ultimate perspective is, like I said, be in a loving, non-attached relationship. Now, the Buddha doesn't say this in the five precepts. All he says is don't uh, engage in sexual misconduct. So I'm reading a lot more into it. He says just avoid sexual misconduct, which means lying, cheating, inappropriate coercive, non-consensual, non, uh, you know, just the, he said, just don't do that. 
It doesn't have to be monogamous. It doesn't have to, it just has to be honest, really. The biggest piece is just honest and, and kind of ethical relationships. So avoid causing harm intentionally, volitionally. It's said that in um, most like Buddhist cultures, Buddhist countries in Asia, that um, if you go to the monastery, the majority of the monasteries and visit, or uh, that mostly you'll be giving teachings on ethics, that these five precepts will be the sort of leading thing that, that Buddhism uh, is teaching traditionally. Uh, that actually meditation isn't practiced all that much in a lot of the Buddhist countries and in the Buddhist monasteries. And, but they're big on renunciation. They're big on teachings of karma, big on teachings of ethics. And this conversation is the leading conversation. I think I, the way that we've been doing it in the West I'm also guilty of this, is that mostly we're interested in meditation, right? Like some of you are like, I came to a fucking meditation class and I'm getting lectured about ethics. <laughs> but it's central. It's, it, it, it's central to what we're trying to do. In order to get free from suffering, we have to meditate. We got to become mindful. We got to become compassionate. We got to become the wisdom that we're looking for. Meditation is the path to that. But because karma is what's happening here, just meditating isn't enough. There's a level of renunciation around dishonesty, around unethical relationships, um, around violence. And that fifth precept, controversial. The fifth precept um, in Buddhism, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, uh, is understood of total abstinence from any form of recreational drug or alcohol use. Now, the first four precepts, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, avoid sexual misconduct. You can see the karma in those, right? You can see like, oh, well, yep, the karma of lying, of stealing, of killing, of cheating. Makes sense that the Buddha would say, don't create that karma for yourself. But what's the karma of tripping balls? I'm not hurting nobody. Or having a glass of wine, you know, pairing it with the chicken. <laughs> it's just delicious or uh you know smoking a little weed or whatever you know microdosing. what's the you know what's unethical about getting a little high and i think that the answer is nothing unethical about getting high and it's where it's a little confusing where the first four are really about ethics there is an argument that has been made that i'll propose that the fifth precept is in there in support of the first four. Because as soon as you're intoxicated, you're more likely to lie, steal, cheat, or murder. 
as soon as you're you know, no longer fully, uh, they use the term heedful, which also just means mindful. As soon as you're high, you're not as mindful and you might start exaggerating or minimizing or flirting or in a way that's not necessarily ethical. So that abstinence encouragement in service of integrity. Now, I have a bias and my community, I usually, I probably up to three quarters of us are recovering drag, drug addicts and alcoholics, you know, against the stream, refuge recovery, my community, the probably three quarters of, of, of the communities in recovery. So we hear the fifth precept of an, as a necessity of like, I need to do that to stay out of jail. I need to do that to stay out of misery. I need to, I need abstinence because I'm fucking allergic to that shit. It destroys my life when I indulge. So for us, the fifth precept supports our sanity, our recovery, our healing. We need abstinence. It's a much bigger dilemma for all of you, know, you however many people here listening or who aren't addicts and have a, a ability to recreationally indulge in some substances. It's a much bigger dilemma for Buddhists who aren't uh, forced <laughs> to abstain, like us addicts, like us alcoholics, who are like, it's not really an option for me. That option goes down a very bad path that we've been down too many times. So we're in a situation and then uh, it gets further confusing because uh, one of the, the I, I asked some teachers why so many Buddhists don't practice abstinence. And one of the uh, explanations that I heard was that um, when the Buddha was dying, his people that were around him asked him, uh, okay, you've set up all of these rules for us, like stay sober. <laughs> You set up all of these rules for us. Do we need to follow all of them forever? <laughs> and he said something like, well, you could let go of some of the lesser trainings, but keep the greater trainings, something like that. So then people, and this was 2,600 years ago. So then people over the last 2,600 years have been deciding which rules are important and which ones aren't. And whole traditions of Buddhism as Buddhism um, spread to from India to Thailand and Burma and then up north into China and Korea and Japan and, and back to Tibet. And there's whole traditions which don't practice abstinence from alcohol. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they use alcohol as some of their uh, empowerment rituals, some of their teaching rituals. I remember one time I had against the stream when we had a place over on the uh, east side on, on Melrose, I had rented the meditation center to this Tibetan group for a teaching for an empowerment. And I came in in the afternoon to say hello to the Lama. And, um, and there was two bottles of booze on my altar. It was like, if I came in here and there's just two bottles of booze and I was like, and then I remembered like, oh yeah, they drink booze. Like it's not even on my radar, Buddhism and drinking booze, but it's part of their religious tradition. and 
it's part of Buddhism. It's part of that Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism that they have a thing called a soak where they, it's a little bit like a Catholic service. You know, you go to church and you, little blood of Christ, you know, they're like, you know, <laughs> little uh, spit of the Buddha. I don't know what they, <laughs> I don't know what they, how they justify it. I'm not that familiar with it, but. My sense with the fifth precept is yes, it will of course um, support an ethical and, uh, but even more than ethical, because I think there's probably some people who occasionally have a glass of wine or some forms of intoxicants that are still very ethical, very honest, very kind, very generous, loving that, you know, they're not alcoholics or anything. Um, it's not, it doesn't create problems for them. But from a Buddhist's perspective, uh, it does block mindfulness. It is a conscious choice to say, tonight, I'm going to lose mindfulness with dinner. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, just, I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm not going to lose my ability to be fully and completely present uh, while I'm at the club tonight. <laughs> <laughs> or when I'm at dinner with friends or when I'm whatever it is, I'm going to consciously choose to not be fully present. And Buddhism's encouragement is choose to be fully present as all of the time. The encourage, don't put anything in your system that's going to make it not possible to be fully present. I do feel like I should say, this is only about recreational intoxicants. It's not about prescription medicine. If you need, um, you know, if you need to take pain pills because you're injured, it's not against the precept to take medicine. If you need to uh, take uh, psychotropic medicine to treat anxiety or depression or something, and it's prescribed, it's not. Uh, it's not the same recreational it's when we're doing it just for fun is what the buddha is addressing not ne necessary medicines that also might have a side effect of a little buzz so five precepts ethics karma i know is a little bit all over the place questions discussion does it make sense clarifications please in the back at home if you have a question you can raise your hand in the on the first one yes about killing yep does that mean we have to be a, a vegan there's a perspective that you may or may not agree with so the answer the simple answer is no um the karma, the, the Buddhist perspective is, is that the karma is in the killing, not the consumption. Now, there's a bigger perspective that says, but hey, if we were all vegan, less animals would be killed, which is true. If, you know, if more and more people chose not to consume animals, then less you know, supply and demand and all of that. But uh, the Buddha wasn't a vegetarian. Buddhism is not a vegetarian-based tradition. There are sects of Buddhism that choose to practice vegetarianism. But overall, um, the Buddha, what he said was, um, we're, 
beggars. You know, he was a homeless mendicant. So he said, whatever's offered, we take what's offered. And if it's meat, we take it. There is a place in the training for the monks and nuns where it says, if you know the animal was killed specifically for you, you shouldn't receive it. You shouldn't accept it. But if it was just being served and they offered you, you know, some fried chicken, then you could enjoy the fried chicken. Um, but uh, we couldn't kill it ourselves and we couldn't, um, if we knew it was killed for us. With factory farming, with supply and demand, with ordering food, we have to find our own way with it. Um, in some Buddhist countries, uh, it's so hard to find, you know, it, when the whole culture becomes committed to the precepts, it's hard to find a butcher. And so like in Tibet, I'm aware, what I've heard anyways, is that, you know, Tibet became so Buddhist and so committed to compassion and non-killing that none of the Buddhists were like, I can't do that job. That would be terrible for my karma. So they had, uh, you know, they brought some Muslims in to be the butchers. Like those guys don't care about killing. Like we'll have them get the karma, which is also a little unethical, questionably <laughs> ethics, you know, <laughs> ethics of that, you know, kind of. I've done this before um, with, in my relationship before she caught on to it, where I was like, I can't kill the, you know, like I don't want the ants here either, but uh, can't kill them. And, you know, after a while, she's like, fuck you, you kill him. Like, I'm not going to take the karma all of the time. It is a cop out to have other people do our killing for us, you know, like take the responsibility. If you want to get rid of the ants, take some of the karma or live with them or figure out a different way to. Please. Um, I read somewhere I'm not familiar with the direct quote, but did you remember more context to why that was quoted? I think it was in the terms of like, that if you're willing to lie, you're willing to like do others. That it's a kind of a slippery slope that could lead to all kinds of, I'm not familiar with that specific uh, quote or, or teaching. Um, but there's emphasis over and over on the importance of honesty. And, um, you know, like with right speech, uh, you know, so in the five precepts, there's two things about honesty. One is about stealing and one is about lying. But then there's a whole nother section of the Eightfold Path about right speech, wise communication, where it talks about when we communicate, always tell the truth, but make sure that it's the right timing for that truth telling and that um, it's the coming from a place of um, kindness on some level, because we can use rigorous honesty uh, in a harmful way. And sometimes telling the truth and it's the appropriate time and it's the you know appropriate place and it's it's all of the qualifications but it's still going to hurt somebody's feelings a little bit. That, and that's okay, right? Like, so we don't wanna get so attached to 
harmlessness that we're then avoiding conflict. Because sometimes telling the truth in the right time and the right way is going to bruise somebody's ego or offend them, or, but we still need to tell the truth. Or maybe it's going to hurt us. Like how often do we omit what's really true because we don't want the consequence of the conflict that it's going to create if I tell you the truth? Um, so it's a very central, and even the, just the fact that it gets its own section of the Eightfold Path, and then it's mentioned again, right? So it's the third factor of the Eightfold Path is right speech, and then the fourth is right action, and again in right action he says, tell the truth, <laughs> don't steal the karma of that community, because we're, we're spending so much of our life communicating with each other. So probably most of the karma that we're creating is based in, in words, words and actions. But let me take one online. James, go ahead. Um, thank you. Um, I had an understanding of karma to be, you were talking about getting to the black, and I thought it was more of a trying to find the balance that if you had a whole bunch of positive that that would take you back in the Could you understand the question? Uh, what James was saying, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but what I was hearing uh, was that I made this comment about like being in the black with your karma. Like uh, um, sometimes I've used this, it doesn't really work this way, but there's a, there's a simplified way to, to, and you've maybe, maybe what you're referring to. My father used to say, um, think about it as karma, savings, and loan. And um, how much uh, are you depositing? Positive karma. How many? And, or how much have you borrowed? How much? Every negative is a withdrawal. Every lie, every act of unkindness is a withdrawal. And so then we look at our karmic accounts and we say like, fuck, I'm way, I'm like millions of dollars in debt. I've been lying and stealing and cheating for decades. And even on the path, I'm still, you know, not fully. So honesty, deposit, kindness, deposit, generosity, deposit, tolerance, compassion, more and more. But the ultimate goal is to have no withdrawals at all, is to have no, uh, and it's sort of one of the definitions of uh, kind of, the different stages of enlightened beings and then the fully enlightened Buddha uh, causes no harm, doesn't do anything that's causing negative karma for themselves. And that is the ultimate goal is to uh, cause no, create no negative karma and only to speak true and kind and loving and compassionate way of being so that there's no negative involved in it at all, only positive. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I, for some reason, I don't know where I heard it. Maybe it was not a Theravadan thing where you're not only that you're going to get to that balance point. So I don't know. You have to hit it right as you're passing out of this world or whatever. So you don't go one way or the other. But then it was like you're supposed to reach like a balance. I mean, I've, ne I've never heard any Buddha say, um, that we only want to balance it. I've, I've always heard that, you know, we want it way in the, 
you know, which to me makes sense. Like, yeah, I want to live in a way where it's honest and integrity and I'm just, you know, there's no negative karma happening, but that's the goal. I'm not there, but I want to, you know, I want to strive for that. Okay, it's nine o'clock. I see one more hand. I'll, um, Lori, I'll hang out if you want to ask me afterwards, but I don't want to keep everybody hostage. Um, like all of the teachings of Buddhism, like everything that I have to say to you, this is not meant for you to believe it, um, but for you to consider it, for you to reflect on it and find out for yourself what makes sense to you. Um, as we study Buddhism, as we talk about it, as we discuss it, it's an open-handed perspective that you get to look at and chew on and digest and come to your own knowing rather than believing it or some, you know, it's not a faith-based thing. It's a experience. I'll be here the next, uh, few Mondays until March, I'll be away for a retreat. I think there are a couple spots left. It's almost full. I have this 10 day retreat with uh, Jason Siff, who's a colleague of mine in Portugal, over in Europe in, um, uh, it's March 17th through 26th, I believe. And it's a 10 day retreat. And if anybody wants to come sign up soon, cause I think it's just about sold out, not fully sold out yet. And then against the stream, we'll have a Memorial Day weekend retreat, May, whatever that is, 25th through 27th or something like that in May, where we'll have a three-day silent retreat up the hills in um, Running Springs up by Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear area up in the mountains in, in May. I haven't scheduled a day long for this uh, season yet but i will I'll, I'll try to put something on maybe for february or may or uh march i'll try to put something on the schedule classes uh done by donation against the stream is a non-profit organization that is a hundred percent supported by you who come here and attend um, nobody's paying the bills for us. We pay the bills together with the donations, which is a terrible business model. Um, but it has worked out so far. Like I said, I've been teaching this Monday night class for the last almost 18 years. And your generosity allows me to keep showing up and allow us to keep the lights on and, and to have a meditation center on the west side of Los Angeles, which isn't cheap. So be as generous as you can be. Uh, if you don't have any money, you're welcome here. You don't have to pay anything and you're welcome to be here. But if you have money, give some money, $20, $25, become a monthly supporter, help us pay for this thing so that we can continue these practices and to have these discussions, be as generous as you can. Plus, you know you need the karma. <laughs> so thank you for your generosity in advance. And at home, there's a link to the um, donations there. And many goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all beings. Okay, now you can escape. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.